We'll turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 14. We're picking up where we left off last week. Left off in verse 6. We're going to be picking up in verse 7, and we're going to run all the way to verse 14. And what we're going to see this week, I hope to prove this week, is that lofty, high, deep doctrine does indeed have a way of working itself out in our lives. Now, this week, the doctrine is the doctrine of the Trinity that Jesus is going to be speaking of. We're going to see it mostly manifested as Jesus talking about himself and his oneness with the Father. Coming verses later that we're not going to get to this morning, uh, it talks about the Holy Spirit. But even Jesus speaking about his oneness with the Father makes us have to wrestle with the concept of the Trinity. And throughout church history, affirming the Trinity has been something that the church has insisted is essential to the Christian faith. All throughout church history, you go back to the, uh, the creeds and the confessions. So the confessions and the Reformation around the 1500s and the 1600s, they say things like this, like the Heidelberg Catechism from the 1500s says, since there is but one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. And then similarly, about 100 years later, the Westminster Larger Catechism says this, how many persons are there in the Godhead, meaning the, the full essence of God? How many are there? The answer is this, there be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. The church has said from even before those days that to deny the Trinity, to deny that God is Trinity, we're rejecting the God of the Bible. And if you deny the Trinity, then Jesus is not your Savior, the Bible is not your book, and Christianity is not your faith. Now, let me give a disclaimer before we go through all those things, because what we can do is we can hear the, the panic of, like, I don't know everything there is to know about the Trinity, so am I a Christian? The disclaimer is this. Denial is not the same as ignorance, because we can look through all of Scripture and see plenty of people dying in various stages of Christian maturity. The easiest one to look to is the thief on the cross. Did he understand the Trinity, or did he only just know Christ as his Savior? Well, he only knew Christ as his Savior. So ignorance is not the same as denial. What we're talking about here is an explicit denial. No, God is not eternally coexistent in three persons as one God. That's the difference that we're talking about. To not know is it can be innocence, but to reject this is wickedness. So we joyfully then, as the church, embrace this doctrine of the Trinity for myriad reasons, but chiefly the reason is because this is who God says he is. This is who he says he is, and for everything that we learn new about God in the Bible, it's just another reason to love him, right? Another reason to love him because of who he is. We love him for who he is. Now, everything that's new is just another reason to love him, but does the doctrine of the Trinity have any practical implications? We're going to say that it does, 
But before we get there, often what we do in, in modern evangelicalism is that this doesn't matter to me unless I can find a way to actually like live it out or do something with it, or if it doesn't help me in any immediate, tangible way, then I don't need to know it. We've heard a lot of things like, wow, doctrine is dry and it's dusty and it's just kind of impersonal and doesn't really change my life, so who really cares? I want to hear things about how to live better, how to do these things, and all those kinds of things. Well, let's, well, let's ask ourselves another question. If we're going to say that we're in a relationship with Christ, and we always say that, right? It's a religion. No, it's a relationship. So if there's a relationship that I'm in that I refuse to learn more things about that individual, then what kind of relationship is that? I mean, what if we approached our spouses that way? Look, you're pretty, and I can see that. You're handsome, and I can see that. I don't want to know anything else about you. I just want to know what you can do for me. Just let me know how you can benefit my life. Can you cook? Can you clean? Are you a good wage earner? Do you have upward mobility in your job? Then that's all I want to know. I don't want to know like where you came from or, or you know, the, your fears or your goals or your dreams or your likes or your dislikes. I don't, I don't even know any of that stuff. Just what can you do to make my life better? Now, that would be an awful relationship. So certainly we don't approach God along those lines. But yet in God's kindness and in his infinite wisdom and omnipotence, he can take something so unfathomable as a trinity, which we will see, and then have it work its way out in your life. So we will see both this morning. It does indeed affect and does bless us. And our text is going to answer that in part. God's so gracious to have high lofty truths that do indeed amaze and draw us up in worship, but also work its way out in our lives. So we're going to be looking at this handful of verses, these seven or eight verses this morning. The first couple we're going to look at is verses 7 through 9. To see Jesus is to see the Father is what we're going to get from this. Let me reorient us to our context because we've got to keep remembering where we are. We can't take these as standalone. Remember, Peter's denial has been announced, right? Jesus says, you will deny me three times. That, that, everybody knows that now. The disciples were a little... Uh, frantic about this, hearing these kinds of things. So they're being comforted by Jesus in his announcement of his departure, right? He's telling them, I am going to go. This is for real. I'm going to be denied by Peter and somebody, you still don't know who it is, but he's now out of the room is Judas. He's going to betray me. This is all happening. So he's proclaiming that he is way to the father. That's where we left off, right? He says, let not your hearts be troubled in verse one. And then in verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that's supposed to comfort them and clarify for them. Comforts them because the person that they devoted their lives to was worth it. He's the only one. He's the only way. You have put your faith where it should be. But then also it clarifies the exclusivity of the gospel. Now the conversation is going to shift from what Jesus does to who Jesus is. And then move on to, then what do we do? All in this context of the night before the crucifixion, Jesus is saying, I am going to leave. I am departing. So that's the umbrella that goes over all of this. So follow along with me now in verse 7. In verse 7, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, why did he say that? Because Thomas said in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So Jesus can say, if you had known me, you would have known my father 
also. Now, this is grammatically, in the original language, is pretty difficult to translate. There's several different translations out there. One way to go is to translate it in an assurance angle. If you know me, then you know the Father. So, hey, don't worry. You know me, so you know the Father. But there's also a reproof way to translate it, which is the way the ESV has it, which is if you had known me, you would have known the Father, meaning it's a little bit of accusation. You don't really know me. So you would have known the Father if you had really known me. Now, both make sense and both are applicable. The rest of the passage is going to move towards assurance, but we certainly should not discount a reproof here because he's like, guys, you still don't fully know me. You're growing in that, but you still don't fully know me. I am the exclusive way to the Father because knowing me, Jesus says, is knowing the Father, and seeing me is seeing the Father, he says at the end of the verse. You have seen him. He's just reiterating his open claims to deity that he's always made, right? Most clearly in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And then how does the crowd respond to that? They pick up stones to kill him because they get it. We know what you're saying. You're not just saying that you're fancy or that you're smart or you're quick-witted or that you're good at illusions and sleight of hand. No, you're saying you are God. They get it. Now, the disciples are coming a little slowly to this revelation but jesus is saying you know the one true god of the universe if you know me same is true for us we know the one true god the creator of all things the sustainer of all things if we know jesus but if we do not know jesus according to this verse then we do not know the true god now, that's a weighty claim that his deity is paired with the exclusivity of the gospel to know jesus is to know the one true god to not know Jesus means you don't know the one true God. See, the identity of Jesus is not something that we can approach casually or should. But our culture, we just live in this, a very casual as with our dealings with Jesus. You can go to Walmart or Target or Amazon right now and buy action figures of, of a cartoony Jesus-type figure. And we're very casual with how we approach Jesus. But Jesus is not customizable to each of us or to each church denomination because God is not customizable that there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints so we have no hope of heaven without Jesus therefore we can have uh, therefore we better know that we have the right Jesus because we know that we're flooded with counterfeits and Jesus said lots of people to his own disciples are going to come after me saying that they are me and they're not that's always going to happen. So we, we better search the scriptures to know the true Jesus. This is the only thing, this is the only bit of knowledge that then works out in the life change that we cannot afford to be wrong about. Right and wrong means heaven and hell on this issue as to who is Jesus. Philip feels the weight of this. So he, in verse 8, is going to have to respond as seemingly on behalf of all of the disciples, but he can't let it sit. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So he felt the weight, and he said, Jesus, he heard Jesus say, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but he wasn't putting it all together. He's feeling the weight. He doesn't respond as, as intelligently as he should have. But nevertheless, he's asking for something that's not outrageous. We'll get to that, but let's remind ourselves who Philip is. You remember Philip? Back in chapter 1, verses 43 through 46, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. I mean, this is when he's gathering his disciples. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. 
Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. Just come and see. And then Philip again is in the situation in chapter 12. Remember a few weeks ago when the Greeks are coming to Jesus and they come to Philip and they say, Sir, we would see Jesus. And Philip says, I know what to do. Come and see. He takes him to Jesus. So when we see Philip, we see somebody who is the real deal. He, he's looking at Old Testament scripture. He remember Moses in the law said that this, we, we have the guy that Moses was talking about. And he's zealous in bringing people to Jesus. His two big appearances in this gospel before here, he's just shuttling people to Jesus. So he's not, this isn't, this isn't coming from a place of, of uh, doubt or disbelief or rejection, but of just of, of, of zealous, heartfelt immaturity. What kind of question is coming from? He's not a slouch, but he is immature, like all of us. He doesn't understand what Jesus really means, and he says, if you'll just give us one last supernatural miracle, then that's enough. Just one. I mean, we've seen a lot, Jesus, that John says at the end of John, if we recorded them all, it would fill up all the books in the whole world. But Philip goes, just one more. Just This would be the clincher if we could see this. See the Father. And he quotes, Phil, he quotes Moses back in chapter 1 that we read that, and now he's acting like Moses. Do you remember when Moses asked this same thing? Exodus 33, 18 through 20, Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. What Moses asked in sincerity, Philip asks in a bit of ignorance. These are different relationships going on right now. This is Moses speaking directly to the triune God of the universe. This is Philip talking with the, the, the incarnate representation, reality of the God of the universe. And Philip, in verse 9, Jesus responds and says this, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip, you should know this already, Jesus is saying. This is a loving rebuke from the shepherd. Philip, you've heard me teach on this dozens of times. You've seen the supernatural spring out of me, Philip, haven't you? You were carrying baskets back and forth to me, full of bread and full of fish. You saw the lame rise. You saw the dead get back up. You saw Lazarus walk out of the tomb. You saw all of these things, Philip. And while you haven't seen God's essence, as no human can, we read in Exodus 33, you have seen God made flesh. And John says at the beginning of this gospel in 114, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Man, isn't that what exactly what Moses asked to be able to see? I want to see your glory. And John says we as disciples saw his glory because we saw the word made flesh, meaning Jesus, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Philip, you, you have seen it, but you still don't know me all the way. You still don't know me the way that you should and the way that you must. And in speaking to Philip, he's speaking to all of humanity, all of us in 
the church and those outside the church, all created who bear his image, unless you know Jesus as God, fully affirming his deity and his shared essence and co-eternality with God, then you don't know the real Jesus. Now, again, the disclaimer, ignorance, not the same as denial. Denying Jesus' deity is, is unforgivable. That's not the real Jesus then. Not knowing it, that's different. So we want to follow along with the disciples and Jesus' gentle leading to them, to, to the truth, to the greater understanding and the grasping of the truth as to who he is, because we have to resist, fight, and call out clearly deniers of Jesus' deity, because this is so heavy, because Jesus told him, how long have you been with me and you don't know me? What do we say when we talk evangelistically and we talk missions? We want people to know Jesus. To not know him, that's a big deal. And Jesus is saying, if you don't know my deity, then you don't really know me. You may have the right letters assembled and call the right name out, but that's not really knowing me. And there's plenty of deniers of Christ's deity out there. Islam and Judaism, they'll say, no, no, Jesus was a real person and probably a prophet of sorts. Certainly not God. Hinduism and Buddhism will say his teachings, you know, in large part, a lot of them are really, really good, and you should listen to them and you should apply them. And then Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons will say, oh, absolutely, man, he is to be revered, and he is special, uh, he's super. I mean, he's not, he's not God. And then liberal Christianity, the apostate churches that are all around us, mostly in the main line, they're just going to revere him as this great teacher and mostly as a martyr. He just, you know, he was wrongly persecuted, and, and he, but he had said a lot of nice things. That's not, but he's not God in that sense. None of those groups affirm him as God. None would say that seeing Jesus is seeing God. Therefore, Christ will say something similar to them with no recourse. How long did I give you and you still did not know me? Like he said to Philip, how long have I been with you and you still don't know me? Because to see Jesus is to see the Father. There is nothing in the Father that is not in Jesus. Jesus isn't deity light or diet divinity. Came up with that. That's pretty good. He's neither of those things. He is truly God in exactly the same manner that the Father is truly God. He has to be. Otherwise, this is no savior. This doctrine is so important that Jesus must teach on it further. So he's going to continue on. He can't let his disciples remain in ignorance on this. If this is where we are, this is the question that Thomas is asking and Philip is asking on behalf of the whole group. Peter's being quiet because he's already been told what he's going to do. Then this is critical in Jesus's mind. They've got to know this. Before we move on to what you should be doing, before we move on to suffering for me, before we move on to understanding what it's going to be like while I'm gone, but yet you have the Holy Spirit, before I pray for them, they've got to know this. Chapter 14 has got to come before 15, 16, and 17. Eternal life and eternal death hang in the balance. So he's going to make it as plain and simple as possible. So in verses 10 through 11, this is the shared essence of Jesus and the Father. He's going to make it so plain that we can't, we can't mistake it. You can reject it, but you can't misunderstand it because it's going to be very, very plain and clear. Verse 10, Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father 
and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus is saying to these men, brothers, it is essential that you grasp my shared essence with the Father. You've got to grasp that. It cannot remain unresolved in you, he says to the disciples. While there will always be a degree of mystery to the Trinity, we will not plumb the depths because God has not given us the faculties. How does one plus one plus one equal one? But it does. So while that will always remain somewhat mysterious, our commitment and affirmation of this doctrine cannot remain mysterious. We have got to be clear that we affirm it and believe it. So Jesus acknowledges that they're struggling, right? Don't you believe this, guys? Don't you get it? He's acknowledging that. He says, if you're struggling to believe this, then consider my work, is what he's saying in verse 10. The Father who dwells in me does his works. See, in the church, we often refer to, and you've probably heard me say this, the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? That's a, that's a succinct phrase that we often use as helpful in theological studies, the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is and who, what he does. His identity and his activity, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes knowing more of who he is helps explain to us what he does or why he does what he does. Now, what's happening here is the reverse. Jesus is saying, you're struggling to grasp who I am, so consider what I do. Look at my works to then help you understand me. That's what he's going at. That's the angle of explanation that he's taking. Jesus, he's just being the master teacher and taking and making digestible that which is overwhelming. That's what he's doing right here for us. So in calling them to remember his words and his works, verse 10, as the evidence of his inseparable union with the Father, that's the evidence for it, what I've said and what I've done, Jesus says, then what he's repeated oftentimes in the Gospel of John. Let me just read you a handful. John 5, 19 through 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Me and the Father doing the same thing. I'm doing the works of the Father. John 10 37 through 38, I am not doing the works of my Father. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And then towards the words, he says in John 12, 49 through 50, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a command, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. He said this many, many times, and now the disciples are in a closed room, and he's saying it again to them. Remember this. I've been saying this. This is where it's going to come home to help you comprehend and understand. Because how did everybody respond to Jesus' works and to his words? When they really get it, when it really lands, how do they respond? Well, the officers who are trying to arrest him in John 7, this is how they respond. In John 7, 45 to 46, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. 
they heard the words of a living God and they were stunned into inactivity and employee failure. And then the man born blind, John 9, 32 to 33, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So the words and the works are driving people to see this. He's got to be God. He's got to be something else that's not us. So Jesus is just calling his disciples to those similar type conclusions. The words and the works, they bear witness that he is God. So we meditate on what he did and we conclude and that no one could do them. And no one could say this unless he were God. So then Jesus goes on with his disciples in verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. There it is. Believe this. And if you're struggling, go back through my greatest hits. Just look at them. You can't deny them. You can go find the blind guy. You can go talk to Lazarus. I mean, after I'm gone, Jesus is going to die tomorrow. Lazarus is still walking around. The blind guy's still in town. The lame man's still there and not by the pool of Bethsaida. The water was turned to wine. You could go find that head waiter in Cana and say, do you remember this? You could go find the people who were blown away by his teachings. You could go find the, the, uh, the priests that Jesus was blowing away as a 12-year-old in the temple. They're all still here. So believe these works. Let appeal to them. He's not saying, though, that it's merely that seeing miracles is usually more persuading but what John has chosen to use is the word signs pointing towards Jesus as the Savior, as the Son of God. Carson calls them nonverbal Christological signposts. Okay. Nonverbal, there's not writing written out. I know he's speaking. It's just, look at that. It's a sign pointing towards his deity. And he just states so plainly in this verse that we can't miss it. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now, the Father is never said anywhere else in Scripture to indwell anyone or any place. So the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament, that's the Spirit of God. We would see that as the Holy Spirit. So the Father indwelling is a unique claim of Christ that can only be said of two, the Spirit and the Son, only they share an essence and a dwelling with the Father in the Scriptures. So this declaring of his co-eternal nature and same essence as the Father is just plain as day. Now, how does this work out? See, Jesus is not going to leave them here with this. He's going to instruct them further. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. He's, now he's preparing them to his absence. He just taught them high, lofty doctrine, but the, con the, the context, the umbrella is still, I'm leaving and you don't know what to do. You're panicking. So he says, what will it be like when you're gone? I'm going to tell you further. Here we come to our original question. How does the doctrine of the Trinity impact my life as a Christian. It impacts what you do and it impacts how you do it. That's what Jesus is going to show right here. These three verses, 12, 13, and 14. What you do. This is how it impacts it. 
the works of Christ. That's what it says we're supposed to do, right? Verse 12, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works. Why? What's the reason? What's the reason why we will do those works? He says, because I'm going to the Father. That's why you're going to do those works, because I'm going to the Father. I'm coming back to physically this reunification of the Trinity. Not that it was ever divided, because it cannot be. But that's the reason why we're going to do these works as the people of Christ, the disciples, and consequently all of us in the New Covenant Church. It's because he's departing, we pick up his mantle. Similar to the Elijah-Elisha scene, right? Elijah departs, so Elisha picks up his mantle, his coat, and goes and does double the amount of works that Elijah himself did when he was alive. Jesus is speaking similarly. And if Jesus wasn't truly God, he wouldn't be returning back to the Father. But him being inseparably part of the Trinity, that's directly correlated to us continuing his work. Now, we've heard this verse before, I'm sure you have, in, in various common misunderstandings, but who grabs onto this verse the most is the charismatics, right? You read this verse, and you're like, I am going to have superpowers because I'm going to do even greater works than Jesus did, only and exclusively thinking of miracle, right? Now, what did Jesus actually say that he came to do? Because the apostles don't even do greater works than Jesus does, right? None of them heal anybody who's been dead for four days. Eutychus comes back, but he had fallen on the ground and died instantly, and then Paul brings him back. The four-day waiting period to Lazarus, that's a big deal. Nobody does that. None of them walk on water. None of them exercise any kind of authority over nature, like Jesus just making fish appear out of nowhere and fill a boat to sinking, or make a fish somehow have a coin in its mouth when Peter goes and catches it. None of them exercise authority over nature like that. None of them multiply food like Jesus did. So they don't do anything greater in miracles than Jesus did. So this can't be then referring to that, that if somehow we have more juice than the apostle Paul or Peter. So it can't mean that. But what did Jesus explicitly say that he came to do? We know that he did miracles, but what did he say is the reasons that he came to do? The first one is extremely unpopular. Nevertheless, Jesus says it. John 9, 39 for judgment I came into this world. Do you want to do that work? Is that the greater works that we want to do? Because Jesus is saying, that's why I came, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. But he also came for in-gathering. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to do what? To seek and to save the lost. Matthew 9 says something similar in verses 12 through 13, but when he heard it, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, meaning not to those who think that they are perfect and good, but those who know they're not. He came for judgment, he came for ingathering, but he also came for the proclamation of the truth. This one is most impactful. In John 18, 37, this is Jesus talking to Pilate, minutes before he's put on the cross then Pilate said to him so you are a king Jesus answered you say that I am a king meaning you say rightly for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world do we do we see the clarity with this this is unmistakable you can't get around it Jesus says for this purpose I was born 
for this purpose I came into the world. What is it? To bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Those are the three major things that Jesus said he came to do from his own mouth. These are the works that he told us to do because he sums it up in his great commission, his last words to his disciples, right? All authority has been given under heaven and earth to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What are the verbs in there? Go, baptize, and teach. That's what we do. Now, here's the crazy part. This isn't works of miracles, but this is a ministry of the word to the lost and to the saved. We're, we're discerning between righteousness and wickedness. We're pleading with sinners to abandon all that that is and turn to Christ. We teach Christians everything Jesus commanded, but here's the crazy thing. Did you see what the, the, the impossibility of this? Greater works will he do greater than me what could you possibly do what could i possibly do that's greater than jesus now let's go something even further the apostle paul says something that sounds even more sacrilegious in colossians 1 24 paul says now i rejoice in my sufferings meaning his imprisonment at that time for your sake church and in my flesh i am filling up what is lacking in christ's afflictions for the sake of his body the church what is lacking in jesus's afflictions how can we do anything greater? And what did Jesus not do? We got to wrestle with these things. We can't let this go. What can't Jesus do now? Can't, and just in a sense that we got to have a language to explain what we mean. Well, what he can't do now is suffer for his church. He's already done all of that. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Not some of it, he paid all of it. So the afflictions that Paul's talking about is not the salvific afflictions that he endured on the cross. Where Jesus is not suffering for the continuation of his bride right now. We suffer for the continuation of his bride. We suffer for the good of the gospel right now. Not him. We do. So if we fulfill that up, and that's lacking, just as a way to use language to help us understand Paul's concept. But now the greater works that I did, let, let's think about how could it possibly be greater or broader that we do that Jesus didn't do? Jesus only lived for 33 years. If you're not yet 33 are you planning to get there and if you're past 33 you know don't you don't have to wish that you were back there but you're, you're hoping that you're going a little bit further we have more life to live i mean jesus wasn't married he didn't raise any children biblical families that wasn't what he was here to do we didn't even establish any churches and he didn't preach from the full canon of scripture he was speaking new scripture and quoting old testament and then also, he stayed in one geographical sliver of the world. So the greater that we do is not better, more noble, more effectual, or anything like that, but just beyond what he came to do. In 33 years, only three years of ministry, our gospel has gone far beyond Palestine, onto the farthest reaches of the globe. That we have families that we're building deeply in, and we want to see our children be saved. Far more people have been saved after Jesus' ascension to the throne than while he was walking around on the earth. That's the greater. 
perhaps the greatest greater work is just conversions. Far greater numbers of lost souls have come in than in Jesus' life. Not that he couldn't have done it, but he chose not to, and he attached us with it. And there's no greater work than the conversion of a soul. What is greater than that? Crossing out of death to life? Abandoning the kingdom of Satan for the kingdom of God? Coming out of full and, and painful darkness into true and marvelous light? I mean, that's the greatest work that we could ever do and be a part of. That's what we give ourselves to in his absence. See, Jesus' ministry was explosive, unable to be ignored, and rapid fire. Especially if you read the book of Mark. In the book of Mark, over 40 times, the word immediately appears. Immediately Jesus went and did this, and then immediately he went and did this, and then immediately it's just staccato. And that's not what our ministry is like, right? Ours is slow, unimpressive, not amazing, plodding. That's what we do. And we do that, and that's the greater work, Jesus says. So then how are we supposed to do this? If that's the what, that's, that's all consequential to the Trinity. Because he's going back to the Father, because he's united forever and eternally, both directions, with the Father, and he's going back, now we're supposed to do these greater works. How do we do them? Here's where the Trinity bears itself out in this great blessing in John 14, 13 through 14. Whatever, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. How do we do what we're supposed to do as a result of the Trinity being real? Prayer. Prayer is how. Jesus being truly God and us being in him by faith, which is where the Apostle Paul takes the, the baton and runs in that direction, us being united with Christ, that brings our requests into the midst of the triune God of the universe. If I am in Christ, which is what Romans 6 is all about, if I am in Christ, and the book of Ephesians is all, is all about, then that means when Christ is a part of the Trinity, which he always is, then now my requests are being plopped into the middle of the triune God of the universe. My requests for the helps to carry out the works that I'm supposed to be doing and consider the unthinkable glory of Christ carrying your prayers into the fullness of the Trinity. Think about Hebrews 12, or 7, 25. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to pray for you. One of my seminary professors said it like this. Think of the second hand on a clock. Jesus is praying for me. 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 And then Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of the Father. Who indeed is interceding for us. Because he's with God. He is God. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, as a Christian, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. As if God could forget, the Father could forget that we were saved in Jesus Christ. Jesus is always there to remind him. And he can't forget it. And they have the same essence. They have the same mind. Nevertheless, what we're told is we have an advocate saying, he's with me. She's with me. In the presence of the Father, not knocking on the door, not getting on the schedule, 
sharing the same essence as the Father. And then lastly, 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He mediates for us, brings us into company with the Father. This is why for 2,000 years, the Christian church has traditionally, sometimes without understanding, closed our prayers with the words, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Kind of magical sprinkling that if I say this, then I'll get what I want, or it'll make it more palatable somehow. That's not it. This is how we come to him, in his name. That's how we're welcome, because we have his name with us. We're welcome in the throne room of God because Jesus' name is on us. He is there speaking for us. You know, the best way I can think to illustrate this is, is beyond heaven. What's the next place that you could possibly get that would be as close to that? And that is the Dallas Cowboys facility. And my wife's cousin used to be like the junior ball boy equipment. They made him do all this grunt work. But he snuck me in the back door a couple Thanksgivings ago. And I got to go in, and there was a tour group going around, these suckers who paid like 100 bucks to go look at all that stuff. And I'm ducking in and out behind closed doors. I get to hold Zeke's game-worn jersey with the smears on it. And, and, and I'm seeing the shoe-stretching machine because these athletes are so dainty. They can't wear normal shoes and, and all of these things. And there, I have a few social media rules, but there is one, one acceptable plot time to take a selfie. And that's when you are wearing a Dallas Cowboys helmet in the Dallas Cowboys locker room. And I did that, and that's the only one I've ever taken. I don't violate that rule. But because I was with Tanner, nobody stopped me and said, hey, what are you doing? They were like, oh, okay, you're, yeah, you're with Tanner. I mean, he's taking me into the laundry room and where they're, they're airing up balls and shaping them for the kickers. He's showing me all these things. And what can he do? He can open up the T-shirt and hat and sweatshirt closets and just say, what do you want? Grab it. Take it. Because I'm with Tanner. My name means nothing at the Cowboys facility. Tanner's name got me in. Because of who he is, I am welcome in. And he speaks for me, therefore everybody's okay with me in the whole facility, no matter where we go. Behind the scenes, closed doors, closets, locked doors, he has keys, he can let us in to all these things because of who he is, not because of who I am. He, his name got me in. In the same way that we approach confidently God the Father, because we are in Christ and we have his name on us. We ask in his name, the, the name that God respects and reveres and acknowledges as his son, as one with him in essence. And we're a part of that, therefore we're ushered in in our prayers, knowing that Jesus himself is praying for us. Now you see this verse, verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now we all know who distorts that one. The prosperity preachers, right? Get your Ferrari in Jesus' name. Shed that nagging 15 pounds in Jesus' name. Never ever get sick or be sad or have anything go wrong in Jesus' name. And that's not what we're talking about, right? What's the context here? Go back to verse 12. The work you will do and greater works than these. Jesus was homeless, hated, not prosperous financially. So we're doing those works. 
That's what Jesus is saying. I, when we pray in Christ's name for help and provision in doing his works, that's what he promises I will do. That's the guarantee. When you ask in my name, he funds, he empowers, he provides for his agenda, not ours. Primarily, that's the direct ministry of the word, evangelism and discipleship. People being saved, saved people being built up. That's what he provides for. The work of the church, in other words. That's what he's saying that he provides for. But secondarily, indirectly, he's providing for parents and kids. How do I raise these kids? How do I have kids? He's providing for these works, healthy marriages. Of course he wants that. That's the first thing he made was a marriage. The Bible begins and ends in a marriage. Adam and Eve and then the lamb and the church. Of course he cares about that. He's going to provide for those things, for, for opportunity to work, success in witnessing, personal sanctification and accompanying the needs to a faithful life. In your culture, you, you need a car. You need a house. You need food. To live a faithful life. I will do it. Verse 14 says. So I hope. I was successful in convincing you that no doctrine is dead. And no theology is dry. That all doctrine it leads more, us to more faithfulness. And worshiping and living. In light of the triune God of the universe. And the Trinity doctrine is no different. Just, in conclusion just follow this train of thought. Jesus taught us of his true divinity. His oneness with the father which led to him to his works, which led him to our works, which led him to our need for prayer, which led him to promising to respond to our prayer. That train goes all the way back through Trinity. This is doctrine for life, theology for life. None of it's dry or dead. If theology doesn't change how we live, then the problem is with us, not with the truth. So we pray, oh Lord, give us hearts that love to apply your truth, that work to do it. Make us more persistent in prayer. Increase our faith to believe your word. And to sum us up, J.C. Ryle had this unbelievable quote that just fits with where we're landing on, on this doctrine of blessing our lives. He says, let us, however, take comfort in the simple truth that Christ is very God of very God, equal with the Father in all things and one with him. He who loved us and shed his blood for us on the cross and bids us trust him for pardon is no mere man like ourselves. He is overall God, blessed forever, Romans 9, 5, and able to save to the uttermost the chief of sinners. Though our sins be as scarlet, he can make them white as snow. He that casts his soul on Christ has an almighty friend, capital F, a friend who is one with the Father and very God. That's the ultimate life changer doctrine. That the one who says believe in me is one with the Father, not a mere human. Slowly but surely, by his gracious guidance, we see how these deep truths, they change our lives and they reorient our mental dispositions. And what a blessing it is to know and to be known by the creator God who is eternally coexisting in three persons in one divine essence, and we come into that through faith in Jesus Christ, who decided before time began to create, redeem, and glorify us to his glory. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you for showing us these glimpses. We know that we look in a mirror dimly, but we see these glimpses of your 
of your unfathomable nature. You tell us what's true, but you don't tell us exactly how it works. And that's good, because that means then that this is not a book created by a finite mind, that this is a book that springs forth from the infinite. And we thank you. You, you could just leave us in awe of who you are. You could be a, of no concern to our daily lives and how we live and our hard relationships and our difficult jobs and um, just the normal everyday workings of life that come with thorns and thistles and sweaty brows. But you do. And in your, your infiniteness, you can make unfathomable doctrines like the Trinity play themselves out in an assurance of heard prayer. Well, we, we would never contrive anything like that. We could never think of anything like that. And we can look at all other false world religions as case studies. This is alone the truth. Father, thank you so much for this. Oh, Jesus, thank you that we can pray to you because you are truly God. And Holy Spirit, thank you that we can pray to you as we'll learn about next week. That you are a helper, an advocate, and also truly God. That we do not serve a God who needs us, but had perfect community within himself from before time began. But instead chose out of love to create, save, sanctify, and glorify us because of who you are. We thank you for this, Lord. We pray that we would be wrapped up in this, in, in our minds, that we would let it be overwhelming, but also let it be incredibly comforting, knowing that this, this great truth is tied to your love for us, to hear what we have laid on our hearts and welcome us to pray and to bring it to you and to promise to respond. What a gift. We thank you for this. Fill our hearts with this joy today and the rest of this week until you bring us back together again the next Lord's Day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.